You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Brave new radio. We got managers, producers, record labels, concert promoters galore. Wednesday at 8 p.m. on Bravo Radio, Radio Bravo. I'm your professor, David Kirk Furrow, along with Dr. Esteban. Professor Emeritus Marconi. Yes, Dr. Professor Emeritus Marconi, that is on his birth certificate. We are here for you uh, live, recorded live, but this isn't happening live. You're you're listening to a recording, but uh, it's still human beings doing this. And we are talking tonight to Kevin Kastrup, who's the VP Casinos at Wasserman Music. But before Uh we do... Yes, so it's going to be an excellent, excellent interview. And yes. before we do so, should we give thanks, Dr. Esteban? Yes, I think we should give thanks. So we should give thanks and let us do so. We are one of first, we want to give thanks um, to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown, and Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your, your band's business management. Go to VB cpa.com when you are ready. And we should also give thanks to Christine Boy. Bay, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group, F-O-U-R. Forefront Group, Christine, has helped professionals all over the world and maybe a few amateurs manage their investments, plan out for the retirement when somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your personal financial future. Why don't you think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com. Leave the last oi off for savings. As you always should do. We should remind all listeners that Managing Your Band 7th Edition is still out and still waiting for you to crack open those pages and read page 1 through 7,002. Good book. Solid book. I was looking at it last the uh, two nights ago, actually. See? There we go. I wasn't bored either. I was looking at it. Bedtime read. He's looking at the centerfold, which is of Dr. Esteban. So that's free. That comes with it, the centerfold. Yes, it does. And uh, 
The University of William Patterson, the music business program, has been ranked once again as one of the top music business programs. Congratulations to us. Yes. Congratulations, William Patterson, one of the best in the country, actually in the world, because they have international schools on there as well. So one of the best music business programs in the world by Billboard magazine. Yeah. So with no further ado, the dew is gone. It's afternoon. The dew has dried up. We now are going to begin our regular programming. So Dr. Marconi, Esteban, please take it away. All right. Well, great to have you, Kevin. Thanks for having us. uh, All of us on the East Coast at this moment, which is uh, (laughs) rare for us here. Anyway, uh, Wasserman is... um, Structured like the old agencies, because I see you're doing casinos. Is is it is that the way it's structured still? Like there is a territory for each, and a category it, for each agent. Uh, it is in theory. Uh, as of right now, I am the one territorial agent running a department here at Wasserman uh, for casinos. So technically, we're going to be grow- we're we're in the process of expanding and growing out. We'll be adding uh, another agent or two in the next couple of years, and then it will kind of fall into that older system of the uh, kind of territorial booking system, specific to casinos. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, being a casino person, is there a, a casino booker? Let me put it that way. Not a person. Uh, is there a sort of a a tour of casinos that an artist will do? I mean, they'll do like the you know, Connecticut, then Massachusetts, and then Seminoles in Florida, and et cetera? It uh, it depends on the artist. I mean, sometimes the casino dates will be a routed show on a much larger tour. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that way it could be be an isolated casino offer that comes in that fills a Friday or Saturday that just happens to be open. Right. Or, um, you know, there are certain artists and certain genres where um, they will go to go out and play casinos on a weekend. So the two casinos will route on one weekend, but they're not necessarily connecting to the next weekend. Uh, they're right. basically fly, they're fly-in dates, you know, so they'll fly in yeah. on Friday, yeah. do one in, you know, Waterloo, New York, and then drive down to Mohegan on the Saturday and then fly home on the Sunday. Right, right. So how'd you get interested in this, uh, this venue? Well, I was... I worked at Paradigm before um, yeah. before COVID. Uh, I was part of the furlough of 2020 and had a nice uh, stint of 17 months of independence where I was working with a handful of clients on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the Wasserman uh, Paradigm deal went down, they uh, made a concerted effort to start bringing some agents back. Uh, in whatever capacity they were able. And the one opportunity that um, they really needed to fill was someone to run a casino department. Uh, it was an obvious um, an obvious space that needed uh, some attention. Mm-hmm. So uh, my history before, or my experience before, wasn't necessarily in casinos. It was kind of casino adjacent in that uh, kind of old school territorial booking model where I was booking everything from clubs to theaters to you know, outdoor amphitheaters and festivals in the Western U.S., mm. uh, but r- routing very closely with my colleagues who were booking casinos. So I was kind of adjacent to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So you started out in Boston with Ted Curlin? I did, yes. And my first, doing... It's my first paid gig. <laughs> so you were doing, you were working with jazz artists with him or? Yeah, at that time it was almost exclusively jazz artists. Their, their roster has kind of grown and expanded since I left 20 something years ago. But um, at the time it was very jazz heavy, that's for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, um, well, I guess jazz only has a limit to how much really can be made in that field. So your crossover was when? Well, so yeah, I was in that, that jazz world, I guess, for about three or four years. Um, and then after Ted, I came to New York and got a job at a company called IMG Artists, which is a performing arts management company. Yeah. So I went from working with jazz artists to then working with classical artists, dance companies, and world music groups. Um, Jazz, I was a huge fan of. Classical and dance, I had little to no knowledge of. Um, world music I was a fan of because I kind of fell in that space a little bit too. Um, so that was a, a much bigger adjustment, I would say. <laughs> so right. Going from, you know, working for a jazz agency that represented most of the big names of jazz at the time to a classical agency that also had some of the biggest names in the world, but quite frankly, I was not aware of who most of them uh, mm-hmm. actually were. <laughs> so I had a lot of learning to do right fast. Right. So interesting. Was is there what's the difference as an agent between the classical and the pop? Let's say or classical and dance. I would say they book a lot further out. So that was kind of the biggest surprise to me. Is that, you know, if you're working uh, anything kind of pop or you know contemporary, anything along those lines, books on a much shorter window. Mm-hmm. Um, they could book anywhere from three to six months out, maybe a year at the most, if they're really proactive and know what they're doing. Classical music, you're booking at least a year in advance, maybe two sometimes, because most of these artists are um, a little bit more global, I'd say, than some of the, the pop and contemporary acts, where their bread and butter is playing the most beautiful performing arts centers and theaters all over the world and the schedules are filled very quickly. Orchestras book even more proactively. So you have to work around that schedule too. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's a little bit of a different pace. Um, you know, the pop and more kind of commercial music um, happens a lot faster. I think once you get a touring window identified, you, you kind mm-hmm. of just attack it and you start working out the classical thing is a little bit more of a slower burn. Yeah, I would think that the um, the classical there is a a set series or whatever, and then once that orchestra books that series or that center books that series, then they go to next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they don't add like add a date and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's kind of evolved a little bit in the last probably ten years, I guess I'd say. But it, it used to be very much you know every presenting organization or an orchestra would have a fixed amount of money to spend every year. And they had to figure out which artists they were going to bring in with that very specific amount of money. Right. They had a budget that they had to operate within. In the pop and commercial world, it's more based on the gross potential of the shows 
you know, what is the artist actually worth? How many tickets can they sell? What are we pricing the tickets at? There's a, there's a little bit more that goes into it and it can change like that. You know, if an artist takes off all of a right. sudden, you know, you're moving up any size and, and things are moving very quickly. Yeah. The classical, it's kind of like you, um, the artist has a very specific fee that they're looking to get. And you basically have to go out and find those buyers who are able to afford that fee. And then you kind of work backwards from that. Right. Yeah. That's a, basically, I was going to ask that. So consequently, we, um, I don't know if Dave still does this, but we would sort of uh, tell many of our students that these performing arts centers and so on don't, are interested in hiring or knowing people that know something about the area that they don't. So the, the student would say, well, I don't know anything about um, you know, the top cellists and, and so on. <laughs> and we said, no, I think that the interest now, because that's where the money is made to sustain the center is on their so-called pop series or whatever mm-hmm. you know, they may designate that. Uh, so they're looking for someone that will do some ticket sales uh, so they can at least um, sort of build a, an audience that is of a lower or a lesser or a younger uh, demographic. Well, yeah, they need to develop a younger audience. I mean, that, that's been the, the issue with orchestras and performing arts center communities uh, for, for many years now is the, the audience tends to be a little bit older. Yeah. And they need to figure out ways to get younger people into the venues. So a lot of those pop series are the money generators for the season. Uh, yeah. They have a cultural mandate to bring in certain types of artists and, you know, fulfill certain like local or regional goals and, you know, get, um, get that calendar kind of filled first. And then they have their pop season that they have to come in and get commercial artists to yeah. either perform with the symphony or perform a standalone concert. Um, and there, it is important to know kind of what that next thing is, because mm-hmm. a lot of the buyers may not be hip to it. You know, yeah. They, they know their world very well, but they are looking for people that are aware of that world. And, um, I always like to say when I was an agent for classic music and I didn't know anything about it, my territory was the deep south so i had the deep south for dance companies and classical music yeah. and i learned very quickly that i had to stop trying to sell the buyers i had to trying to sell 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 this roster and then i realized that almost across the board every person that i was talking to knew more about what i was talking about than what i was trying to sell than i did <laughs> so i didn't i couldn't try to outsmart them and i couldn't try to do and salesy my goal was to go to as many performances as I possibly could and then talk to those buyers about why I enjoyed it and how I felt they could go about attracting a person like me who uh-huh. was not their target audience or it was their target audience to build, but it wasn't their normal built-in audience. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's an important thing is to go see as much as you possibly can and just be able to talk about it in a way that is comfortable for you and don't try yeah. to, don't think you're smarter than the person that you're talking to because chances are you're not. Yeah. So in yeah. that case, in that case, you were really trying to add value as opposed to take my artists, give me money. It's sure take my artist, but here's why. Here's what my artist can do to help you and your series and your venue 
thrive mm-hmm. musically. Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, a lot of times um, the there are uh, many different artists in a very similar space and they're all a similar fee range, especially in classical music and, and dance companies. So there's a lot of options. And part of it is you want the person who's programming those series to want to work with you. In a way they are, they're buying you as well. In, in a sense, you know, they're, they're negotiating a fee for an artist, but they are really you know, if they can choose an artist from you or an artist from somebody else, they prefer to work with somebody who's honest with them and, you know, can kind of just speak from their own experience and, and not trying to be too schlocky with it. And like you have to touch on right. certain sales points that each artist has and they have a new album coming out and this label, that label, and right. blah, blah, blah. But it really kind of comes down to the relationship to get in there first, you know. Mm-hmm. 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 You know, we're, we're on this little tangent, but I like it. Um, <laughs> do I do classical artists work any percentages or just a straight fee? I think they are working in percentages now. When I was there, I was surprised to learn, actually, in kind of in hindsight, when I got the job at Paradigm, um, which is, you know, kind of way more of a pop uh, indie you know, legacy act kind of agency where um, we were tracking ticket counts and we wanted to know when we hit percentages and what those mm-hmm. percentages were. They were they were a, a big part of the deals that we were negotiating. And I was surprised in retrospect that we weren't doing that with the classical agencies. Yeah, right. I, th- I think that's changed. I think they've realized that, um, you know, there's more money to be made for the artists, you know, if you kind of pay attention to it and it's only fair that they participate in any happen, especially if they're a really big artist and you know yeah. that, uh, you know, if you represent somebody like Itzhak Perlman, Itzhak Perlman, people go to see Itzhak Perlman, the chances are they're going to buy a ticket to go see something else as well, you know, it kind of drives an entire season's worth of programming. Yeah. So um, they deserve to participate in that. So. Yeah, yeah. So I would think that's true, and I think on the on the on the jazz, we're talking maybe about Chris Bodie or Diana Krall or you know people of that. Not many of them, but people of that um, caliber that can mm-hmm. demand a uh, percentage deal rather than just a straight fee. Yeah, I think it's it, that world's evolved a little bit too. I think a lot of the deals, especially in jazz clubs, I mean, a lot of them. You, you, you wouldn't be surprised to see a $0 guarantee versus a high percentage deal of, uh-huh. of the gate. It's pretty standard in jazz clubs. It's just, you know, whatever, 70, 80% of the door for dollar one or something instead of guaranteeing right. money, it's, you know, you get paid as you sell. Right. Um, you know, but yeah, those more established artists are, their deals are more like, um, you know, just a regular touring commercial artist because they're commercial as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now I see um, actually for agencies, this looks like it might be a, a trend, but now I've been following the opening of the Geffen Hall in Lincoln Center and I'm actually I'm going next month. But the idea that they were doing things without the Philharmonic, they were, they were paying tribute to the, the neighborhood that was um, taken over by, the, by Lincoln Center when it was bulldozed down in the 60s. Mm. And they're bringing some Latino acts right to Geffen Hall, whether it's on the steps or outside or something like that. But that's certainly a um, 
a different way of getting a larger or different demographic to the um, to the area, just to the, to Geffen Hall itself. So yeah, I mean, I think you know, in New York, they do a really good job, especially with those cultural institutions, of having a pretty diversified um, set of programming. You know, they really um, make an effort to make sure everybody's represented. You know, I think that's yeah. obviously it's been made even more important in the last decade, but it's it's something, like I said before, they have a kind of a cultural mandate to do that, you know, mm -hmm. really to reflect the entire city, not just one segment of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so moving along, what, uh, what type of new venues have you been seeing lately that have been materializing? In the casino space, there are more outdoor amphitheaters being mm -hmm. uh, opened up and built out. Um, I've noticed a lot of these casinos are renovating their existing theaters too, because they used to just be, you know, uh, kind of gross uh, ballrooms that they yeah. multi-purpose ballrooms, you know? So I think that they understand that um, if they want to attract the big named artists, they have to have a big time venue. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the new casinos that are popping up all have state-of-the-art venues with the best gear in there, you know, to the point where artists don't even really need to bring their own stuff, but they're, they're fully equipped and ready to go and they can handle shows as small as a tribute act, like all the way up to Paul McCartney or something, you know, so it's, they're, I think they're really modernizing and they're, they're realizing that there is a market for that summer, the summer touring packages that play those outdoor amphitheaters. Yeah. And, and families are getting uh it's okay to bring kids bring kids to these for those ones as long as you don't my understanding as long as that the, the venue you don't have to walk through the casino to get to the venue you yeah. can bring your kids to a show but if that yeah. venue if you have to walk across a casino floor to get to the theater it has to be 21 plus so yeah okay. those outdoor amphitheaters offer them the ability to skew younger in some of their programming to try to draw that next generation of <laughs> casino goers, I guess. Yeah. Um, but they're also serving, you know, underutilized markets that maybe don't have a, a really beautiful outdoor amphitheater and just so happens to be connected to the casino. You know, mm -hmm. some communities mm -hmm. just need that venue. They just are missing it, so. Right, yeah. Well, I, I have a condo about a mile from the Hard Rock in uh, Seminole Hard Rock in Hollywood. It, in Hollywood, I've been to that one. That's, that is a nice. That's a nice venue. That's the venue I was specifically thinking of when I said it's a total state of the art venue that can have yeah. everything from tribute acts to Paul McCartney because they literally. Yeah, Paul no McCartney. question. No question. Yeah, but I've also yeah. seen, and you don't have to walk to the casino to get to the, mm -hmm. you know, to the to the to the venue. But I have seen <laughs> I have seen kids in the venue in this yeah. in the casino walking on that the carpet that goes to the exits and so on, you know, not yeah. in yeah, right. either on the outside machines. Yeah. <laughs> but over there I have yeah. seen with their parents. I mean, not alone. Yeah, of course. With, yeah. with their parents. So it was, um, I thought I read years ago, maybe 10 years now, that the Seminoles bought the entire Hard Rock organization for a bit under a billion dollars. Uh, and I, I can tell being down there, winters now and seeing what the what the you know the american the indians are doing it's um it's quite a feat but i think what that did with that and then the casinos in connecticut and then um 
there's a couple in central New York and so on, but they sort of opened up a whole new space for mm-hmm. everyone to, to perform in. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're growing too. I mean, I was surprised to find when I started here uh, doing the casino stuff a little over a year ago, 500 something casinos in this country or yeah. North America. You know, I'm from the Northeast. Uh, I grew up in Connecticut. I knew about Foxwoods and Mohegan that was in Atlantic City. Like, you know, that's in Vegas, obviously. Yeah. Outside of that, I really, I honestly didn't know growing up that there were casinos all over the place. You know, they're not yeah. in every state, but um, the states in, in which it, gambling is legal, they are growing and they're developing new projects and new casinos are opening up every other year. You know? Right. And what they do at Belmont Racetrack now? Is that a casino as well as a No, venue? I think that's just, um, I think that they they might do some events there, but it, there's not a ton, and it's mostly just horse racing there. Yeah. But there are a couple of those tracks, like Tioga Downs, Upstate New York. There are two or three tracks that have summer concert series, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Dave, did you want to? Uh... Yeah, let me let me bring that up to you because, um, like, I I know where Ty- Tioga Downs is. It's right on Route 17 in Oneonta, mm-hmm. I think. But uh, for example, and we'll we'll kind of talk about what you do. But do you, for example, look at the number of artists you have on your roster and say these two or three artists would be great to do to create a festival at a few different casinos? Uh, in the summer, do you do much creation of ideas, or is it mostly um, request for proposal? I have an artist; they're going to be in your area. Can they play there? You know, how, how do you? It's most, it's, yeah, I was going to say it's mostly the latter. It just be, for one specific reason that um, casinos traditionally don't want shows to last too long. <laughs> they want uh, shows to last just the right amount of time so that people can come in before and eat dinner and maybe gamble a little, go to the Surprise show for just the amount. Surprised they're not you know, true, to tell you the truth. Yeah, and you know, get back on the casino floor and spend right. a little money or go out to get a drink after. So in the outdoor spaces, it's a little easier to get away with multi-band bills. Um, but normally it's maybe three at the most and they have to be very tight sets. Um, if you start getting into, you know, like we've had reggae packages going out before and some of those sets tend to drag on a little bit longer, the casino pushes back on those kind of things just because it's just too long of a show and their audience, they want their audience yeah. to be entertained, but they also want their audience to go buy dinner and gamble a little and, and take part in the casino too. Yeah, that was the next question is, the, could you, and you're kind of talking about it, the purpose of casinos even having this entertainment is what? Is bringing in uh, folks to the casino that wouldn't normally go there on their own just to gamble. You know, there aren't, um, you know, regular gamblers, uh, but when they do go to a casino, they gamble a little bit here and there. And they like to go out to a nice dinner yeah. every now and then and, you know, trying to make it kind of an entertainment package. It used to be very heavily um, reliant on that, on the entertainment to bring people in. I think what a lot of casinos found, you know, a little bit unfortunately for what I do, that during COVID, um, people wanted to go to the casinos anyway because it was the only thing to do during COVID. So they didn't rely as much on entertainment. People were just going because they were the only places open. Um, 
now I think they're realizing that they're getting back to the traditional model where they have to book, you know, certain types of acts that, that, you know, people will come to a casino to see and then spend some time, maybe spend a weekend or just a night or whatever, but it's really to drive um, the gaming revenue and the entertainment food revenue. So during COVID, was that a fear of yours? Cause I'm, were you doing casinos during COVID or this is a post COVID thing for you? It's a post-COVID thing for me, but, you know, I've heard plenty about it where, you know, some artists, um, look, I don't want to get any political stuff here. Every state is different. Uh, every state has different rules, clearly, and every uh, Native American tribal authority has different rules. They tend to follow what the state government um, is laying down for them in regard to masking and vaccinations and stuff like that. So certain states were wide open. Um, they like nothing had changed and people can probably guess which states those were. Um, and if not, they were Florida and Oklahoma, like the, those two, you know, basically it was business as usual. And if artists were prepared to go play, um, in that environment, knowing what the risks were, there were still dates to be had. Other states, casinos shut down just like every other business did, um, and took a long time to reopen, you know, it was kind of case by case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've both 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 of you have brought up the um, the Native American influence into the casino market. Can you explain, I guess, around America, and we'll call it North America, so we'll, we'll include Canada in there, um, the structure of the casino market? For example, Atlantic City, my assumption would be, has nothing to do with Indigenous peoples and, and Native Americans yet. Foxwoods or What's the other one in Connecticut? Uh, Mohegan Sun. Mo- Mohegan Sun are connected and and such. So can you kind of discuss that structure around North America of casinos is, if there is something to discuss there? Yeah, sure. I mean, most of, um, yeah, I think the majority of the casinos are built on tribal land. Um, so that is, you know, uh, I get too much in the politics of that, but, it, you know, it's basically um, they're, any casino that is built on tribal land kind of has a, their own tribal authority and a, they have a you know board of directors and a tribal council and, mm. and there's a, a slightly different set of rules that don't necessarily um, jive with um, the rules of the federal government or the state they kind of have their own thing so it's to be specific like you know negotiating certain deal points in a contract um, where most um, North American promoters, Commercial buyers have flexibility in certain things that are in their offers or what's in our contract. It's really difficult to get uh, items changed on a casino contract. They don't negotiate as much. Um, their rules are kind of set in there, and you basically have to abide by those. You know, you might have an agreement to kind of be a little flexible in certain things, maybe like a merchandise percentage or something like that. But for the most part, they have kind of their own set of rules. Atlantic City, Vegas, um, those kind of places are, they're not on tribal land. So a lot of those, especially Atlantic, yeah, Atlantic City and Vegas, when you're dealing with commercial promoters, for the most part, they're going and bombing for those rooms that they were a concert venue in any other city. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about, since you just brought it up, uh, in terms of merch, uh, in general, bigger venues will take a percentage of an artist's merch sales. It could be anywhere from 15 to 20%. In the casino side, is that the exact same thing? Is it higher percentages? It, 
It can be. You know, I've seen as high as the, you know, as the house taking 30% of merch. Um, like I said, sometimes there is room to negotiate and other times there is not. You know, uh, I think some of these casinos look at the merchandise percentage as a revenue stream for them to offset the traditionally higher fee that they're probably paying for the artists than they may be worth on paper. Um, and they're also, it's not just the fee. I mean, they're, they're housing the entire band and their crew. They're, they're feeding everybody. There's a lot of out-of-pocket expenses on the casino side that I think that they can kind of justify taking a slightly higher merchandise percentage because it offsets those costs for them. Um, but then there are definitely places that you can negotiate, especially if you're traveling with your own merch seller. You know, if you're if you're bringing the folks to move all the merch and they don't have to hire anybody to do it, then you have a little bit of wiggle to try to get a better rate. But it's pretty similar, pretty similar to what it is in the kind of traditional torn space. All right. Um, you both earlier were talking about different types of deals in the performing arts centers and also in the jazz clubs. Let's talk about deals in the casinos. Is it just generally a guarantee? Because and you also and get into then you mentioned, uh, I think some listeners may not understand what you meant when you said fly in date. Um, talk about traditionally what the deals are in casinos and therefore how can that enable an artist to have a fly in date and why would an artist not be able to do a fly in date? Can you kind of get into that a bit? Sure. I mean, there's most artists have what we would call a routed fee. You know, if they're on the road and they're amortizing the costs of their touring across, you know, a, a lot of dates, it's it's a little bit easier for them to be flexible on their guaranteed fee because their expenses are lower because they're on the road and they're touring. If they're doing a fly-in date, which is basically they're leaving their homes or going to the airport, flying to X city doing one or two shows and then flying home, they have the cost of the flights, they have the cost of all their transportation, they have to probably rent backline or figure out a way to get as much of their production to these places and then fly it back to wherever it comes from. There, there are built-in expenses there that make flying dates more expensive for the artist. So in the casino space, where a lot of these artists are basically doing you know, what we call this weekend warrior stuff, they're going to charge a premium, you know, and they'll probably get, I mean, it's not a ton. It depends on the artist. Like if they want like the biggest name on a roster, most casinos are going to figure out a way to pay for it. Um, at least the very successful ones that are, you know, the bigger ones can, can figure out a way. Uh, but you might be getting, you know, 10 grand more, 20 grand more, maybe a little bit more than that too, for some artists to do these flying dudes. Cause that's just what it takes to get done. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, if they were on the road as part of a continuous tour that lasted a month or two, it's a little bit easier to be flexible with that, especially when the casinos are, like I said before, picking up for the most part hotel rooms, all of the meals, like three meals a day. Like, you know, that doesn't happen on a traditional tour. So there, you know, there's a little bit of flexibility there. So is the agent you're representing artists? I'm just trying to think um, from a, an artist management perspective. And, and from you as an agent perspective, if I'm an artist, I'm sorry, if I'm a manager and I have my traditional agent at Wasserman who's representing my client, and then when we want to talk and add casinos into the mix, um, then we bring you in and maybe we'll have, mm -hmm. tell me where I'm wrong or, or how this, or actually, why don't you explain? How do you put that together? 
Um, yeah, is that how it works? I have my agent, we bring you in, or who brings up the idea of doing casinos? Um, it happens a bunch of different ways. I mean, a lot of times it's the responsible agent for the artist, the RA, as we call them. You know, they they directly represent that client and they have the direct relationship with the artist manager. They will come up with a plan for the year and uh, discuss all the different options of types of gigs that they could do in that year. They probably want to blend with festivals and maybe depending on what kind of artist is and fairs. Um, theater dates and you know, hey, you know, maybe we could throw in a few casinos here and there. And then you have, you know, classic rock bands who rely pretty heavily on casinos. So they kind of go out and just say, they'll come to me and say, here are the weekends we can work. This is our available time period. Go out there and find as many casino offers as you can. And then we'll route around you. So because my casino dates tend to be the anchors of, of a touring window. I mean, they pay the most. They pick up the extra expenses. They allow the tour to kind of get up and off the on the road, you know. Um, but it's it could work any number of ways. It could be a meeting between all of us in the beginning, where we're sitting with the manager and discussing the plan. It could be the agent coming to me after having a meeting with the manager and the artist, and they would like to do more in the casino space. Like, what are the options? And we kind of go through that. Uh, or, you know, there are just certain artists who you just know the casinos want to book and they want to play casinos and they enjoy it. And I just go out and get offers and start submitting them and then they start routing around them. So. You have any artists that don't want to play casinos that won't? I don't, I don't, I won't say that we have artists that, I'm sure we have artists that won't play casinos. Uh, we definitely have artists that prefer not to play casinos. Um but I think a lot of that is based on a perception they have of casinos that's a little antiquated. And um, there is a thought process there that, you know, artists go to casinos uh, on the other side of their career when it's kind of coming yeah. off that peak right. and coming down the other side. Right. And that's not necessarily the case, you know. Not anymore. Uh, not anymore, you know, because I think a lot of these casinos are trying to program younger, just like we were talking about performing arts centers and orchestras, like, they're all trying to get younger people in the building, you know, and they know that these legacy acts and the classic rock artists, they're not going to be torn forever. Um, some casinos are built for those type of acts, and but the newer casinos, I think, are built as multidisciplinary, um, high-tech, fully loaded venues that can handle any kind of show. So I think it's evolving into more of just being a concert space as opposed to um, like a showroom kind of vibe there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are casinos when it comes to artists playing casinos do do other venues non-casinos when an artist is doing a tour look at a casino and say that's sort of violating a radius clause um they're you know they're playing mohegan sun in central connecticut um it's close enough to boston I don't want you playing Boston uh, 90 days before or after. If I'm, for example, the Boston venue, I don't want you, I'm, I'm not explaining it well. Um, a radius no, clause. I know, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, kind of uh, our casinos looked at in terms of radius clauses as, as a normal venue by other venues and by artists, or are they looked at as just sort of their own thing and they, that doesn't count? I feel like they used to be looked at their own separate thing historically, and now they are considered a, a concert venue 
because a lot of the casinos are trying to sell tickets too. They're not comping half the house anymore. You know, some of the bigger ones will comp a certain percentage. They give away free tickets to their, their big gamblers. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens still, but not with the frequency uh, or of the scale that it used to happen. So they're hard ticket menus that just happen to be on a casino. So yeah, we definitely have to abide and pay attention to radius clauses and just be really aware of where an artist is going to be throughout the year. I think the place where they're a little bit more flexible is the timing after a show plays out. You know, normally it'd be, like you said, 90 days, it'd be 120 days before and after even 150 days, two months. Um, now I think after a date plays somewhere, you know, within four to six months, they should be able to play 100 miles down the road at a casino and nobody's going to care. Mm-hmm. You know, or if that the show that went up first sells out, then you have a little bit of flexibility to kind of, you know, massage that uh, that radius clause down a little bit. Um, but they they consider them competition. They're hard ticket venues that that advertise really far and wide from where the theater actually is. Probably further than most metropolitan venues. They are they have billboards on the highways. They're they're trying to reach people that are up to two hundred miles away to kind of drive in and come to their casino for the weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, you have to be mindful of that for sure. Yeah, that was my next question in terms of if if you're booking a show with a casino. In effect, the casino is the promoter. So what are the casinos doing to sell the tickets? What do you see them doing as, as the basically the promoter of these shows? They tend to be pretty traditional. Um, it depends. You know, there's a couple of bigger promoters who are also in the casino business. You know, like the Live Nation and C3 are, are really big North American promoters who also have a bunch of casinos as their clients. So they will tend to market those shows uh similar to any other show that they're putting out. It's, it, there's not much difference. The A lot of the other casinos are a little bit more traditional. It's billboards. It's uh, if, you're, if you're booking country, it's country radio. It's classic rock radio. It's, um, it's, not, it's, it's really kind of relying on your, uh, your email list and your mailing list of people that gamble at the casino. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's like kind of an old school approach to it, I think. Um, it really depends. It depends on the market, you know, but if, for the most part, I think casinos are pretty traditional in their marketing. Yeah. One more. We haven't talked about online casinos at all, which are exploding. Um, have you had opportunities or are there opportunities for artists to get involved in the online part of casinos? Uh, just like, for example, Fortnite, uh, Marshmallow plays in Fortnite. You have so much online casino gambling right now. Is there a way to connect an artist to uh, uh, name one of the different you know online casinos that are there? I don't think it's gotten to that point yet. Although I wouldn't be surprised to see it start happening in the next couple of years. You know, I think they, there's more of a relationship in regard to branding and sponsorship than there is in kind of in game live performance in that online gambling space, just because it's not. It's not legal everywhere, you know. It's it's state by state at this point. I mean, it's it's quickly quickly changing. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it does start to happen. The thing with you know, like Fortnite and stuff like that is, like, you know, it's a virtual world that you know you can go off and they can create this whole other side of this world. That's the concert space, and like you log in and you go and you go and hang out with a bunch of people and 
in the in the gambling casino space, if it's traditional table gaming, I mean, people aren't really there to socialize too much. You know, I think a lot of those folks are there specifically to try to win money. And I don't know if there'd be a dedicated audience that would want to sit, you know, take time away from gambling to go like see a virtual show. Maybe they would. But for right now, I mean, maybe ideas have been kind of bounced around a little bit, but nothing that's really developed that I've seen. Are horse racing tracks becoming a viable venue? There's a, there's a handful of them. Um, I know there's Gulf not a ton. Gulfstream in Florida had been doing it for 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. uh, what they do is they charge a nominal fee and they give you one bet uh, with that fee. And then you go and you see, mm -hmm. well, at that time they were seeing people like Peter Frampton and so sure. on and so forth, but I'm sure it's come up. But I know they do it at, Bel at Belmont. I'm just mm -hmm. wondering, is this yeah. going to be, is it handled under state fair guy or is it handled, will be handled on a casino? It's, uh, you know, a lot of the casinos will hire somebody to do their programming for them. So it's not an internal person. It's normally a third party that kind of acts, you know, a little bit like a middle agent yeah. where, you know, they, the casino or the horse track will give them their available dates for the summer and say, we want you to fill it with classic rock, rock comedy up to X amount of dollars. You know, let us know what you have. And then that buyer will approach all the various agencies, give them the exact same information and say, look, what, you know, which artists do you have routing on these dates that are available in this fee range and these genres? You basically kind of submit a laundry list to them and then you kind of put the puzzle pieces together and then see if everybody's interests kind of align. Yeah. Um, you know, there's not the horse tracks, you know, for me, I think maybe I've worked with like five or six of them. Mm -hmm. um, in a, on a, they have like a yearly summer series or something. Other tracks that they're having shows are probably being rented out by just regular concert promoters to just kind of build a stage and throw a large show. You know, it's kind of an ultimate space to have a, have a concert. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. Um, indie bands, you know, who might be on the earlier side, uh, you know, if they have management who's, and let's say the bands are repped by Wasserman, uh, are there managers coming to you and saying, are there opportunities for my band? We're not selling uh, Radio City Music Hall size places yet, uh, but we're in the up and coming. Do you think there's an opportunity for us at casinos? Are there smaller casinos? Is is there like a, uh, you know, how like you you go from playing frat parties to, you know, the venues get bigger and bigger. Is that the same way with casinos or smaller ones and you work your way up to the, the big mamas of casinos? I wish it was that way. It, it, it's not really that way, unfortunately. Um, there are a small handful of casinos that have um, multiple venues of varying sizes that can do something like that where they can make an effort to get a band on the way up uh, in hopes that when they... They get up there, they go play the arena or the large theater, and then possibly on that other side of the career, they are going back down to that theater and then playing that smaller space again, maybe for multiple nights or something like that. There are, you know, actually the one casino that was doing a really great job of it was Mohegan Sun. They have the Wolf Den and Mohegan Sun. It's a small, like 400 and something cat uh, concert space in the middle of the gaming floor where they were 
programming every night. So there were a lot of opportunities. They had to fill a lot of space. So they were, you know, if you had a band going from New York to Boston, um, a younger band that, let's be honest, is not making any money on the road. They're basically losing their shirt just to try to get their music out there and to be on tour and to be on the road. Have an opportunity to stop at a place like Mohegan, make a make a little bit of money, uh, get hotel rooms for the night, get a couple of meals. It's a big deal. It's a it's a huge deal. Uh, COVID put a little bit of a damper on that uh, for a lot of the casinos. You know, they had to cut budgets just like every other place did, and unfortunately, spaces like the Wolf Mohegan you know, had their budgets slashed. They don't program as much as they were in like, 2019 before that, but they still do offer the opportunity for younger developing artists or artists that have some kind of a spark, something's happening uh, to come in there and play for free. It's not ticketed, it's a free venue space um, and pick up a little extra cash and kind of build something there. And then once you go in there and if it goes well, people come to check you out, then you can normally get a gig there almost every year. So. But I wish there were more of them. I wish there were more of those kind of rooms. Right. What type of education do you need to give managers? Because generally you're dealing with, I would say, well, are you dealing mostly with your fellow agents or managers as well? I, I know we kind of touched upon that a little while ago, but um, when a managers are like Stabon was saying a little while ago, maybe reticent about playing casinos, what is the education that you're giving them about the casino industry that you feel most artist managers don't really get? Well, I think they, they need to realize that these are commercial venues and not, again, like the places where artists go to die. Sorry, just to be frank, you know, it's, it's, they're a viable part of the touring scene. Sometimes it's nice to offer your fans a change of scenery to go into a different theater and a different venue, um, offer them the opportunity to go away for the weekend with their wife, you know, whatever, and, and go have a nice dinner and, you know, do it a little bit different. I think it's the, educating the managers with the younger artists that you know some of these promoters are, are young folks that are you know they they're really in on what's happening right now they know about bands trajectories they want to be a part of it just like other promoters want to be a part of building an artist's career um it's not it's not every single casino quite honestly but there are definitely those that are good places to go and they're not that um like I said, that ballroom vibe where you're walking in and there's a bunch of fold-out chairs and a kind of a crappy stage and carpet. It's like these are real venues that are, you know, top of the line, fully stocked. You get treated really well in these places. Um, it's a nice stop to have on a long, a very long tour. Mm -hmm. Is uh, Live Nation or AEG interested in all taking over any of these rooms? Live Nation definitely buys for... Uh, a bunch of casinos, I'd say they, they will go in also and promote shows in the venues and maybe not be the the exclusive buyer. Um, AEG is the same. They have a couple of casino accounts that they work with. C3 has a bunch of casinos that they work with. Um, you know, I think everybody wants options. You know, we're, we're all trying to route tours regardless of, you know, which department you're in. If you're in a territorial booking department or if you're a responsible agent, like our job is to book tours for these artists and to grow them and to give them options. And the promoters want options too. And they want to be able to present those to you. So instead of maybe going to this 3000 cap theater uh, in downtown anywhere USA, there's this casino that's, you know, 30 miles outside of town. It's, you know, 1500 seats. We could pay you more. Um, 
put you up for the night, offer all the other kind of ancillary things that go along with those offers and give you a little change of scenery and give your fans a change of scenery. So I think we're all, you know, they're expanding that book of business too because they need to have other venues in different markets to be able to, to be able to route an artist. So. Are there casinos in Canada? I don't there know. are. They're not a ton. There are a few in Ontario. There's a few in British Columbia and Alberta. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, there's like one or two in Manitoba too. Mm-hmm. We've we've talked about the casinos themselves, the audiences at the casinos, and maybe this has changed. I remember uh, Steve Martin, the comedian, not the agent, the comedian, had a book um, called, I think, Born Standing Up. And he talked about how we used to do clubs. And of course, this is the 70s, but he, he would be doing clubs. Audiences would be going crazy. He would take a casino gig for the money and it would be like a, you could hear a pin drop. He said the audiences, they were they were mostly given comp tickets and people would come just because there was a show. They would watch the show and almost because because it was just there. And then it was yeah. it, it was like a soul sucking thing, but they just got money for it. Um, mm-hmm. And basically everything you're saying is it's really not like that anymore. It is a matured business and it's respected by artists and uh, agents and promoters. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, to be frank, we don't have a comedy roster. I wish we did. Uh, the comedy, I think, is probably a little bit different because they're, they're playing a comedy club within the casino. So it is those those smaller kind of spaces. You know, look, if it's a Steve Martin type, he's probably playing the theater. And they do comp a lot of those tickets uh, to their high rollers. And a lot of times those folks aren't paying attention. I know we had a show recently in Vegas um, with not like the classic rock guy or country kind of more, you know, popish maybe from like the 2000s has gone to play um, an album release tour. And they had a very specific theme to their show. It was broken up into two sections with a 15 minute break in between. Mm-hmm. And first set was something very different than the second set. You know, they, they needed the time to came yeah. over. And the casino fought us on it when the tour manager was advancing the date and said, look, you can't take a break. Because if you take a break, people are going to leave. Like, this is Vegas. The second you give them a second to walk out the door, they're going to walk out the door. It doesn't matter how good the show is. You know, you're there. It's, it's, it's a weird thing to kind of say to someone, but, like, you're, you're there to entertain these folks. But the second you give them a minute to go use the bathroom or, like, you know, to change out the drum kit or whatever the heck it is to make sure that second set is happening, they're going to leave. And it's all the people in the front because those are the people that, that they're comping tickets to. All the high rollers that they're giving away the free tickets that they want to get in there, reward them for how much they gamble and all that kind of stuff. They're going to be the first ones to leave. And then your your artist is looking at the section immediately in front of the stage is empty. Um, so we had to figure out a way to kind of just reduce that change over time to make sure that the people didn't leave or keep them engaged somehow so they weren't just mass exiting out, out of the venue. So it is, I think it is a legitimate thing to a certain extent, like where it kind of goes back to the the package touring thing of having multiple bands on a bill. If you give people the opportunity to leave, they're going to leave. They're going to go gamble. They're going to go the entertainment some other way. You really want to keep the shows tight. You don't want them to run on too long. Um, and you kind of have to work within that, you know, their methods a little bit more than, than what you would traditionally do. Mm-hmm. A final question. We actually need to wrap it up in about two minutes. A final question is ticket pricing. In general, uh, an artist, their team has some input into the ticket pricing. In casinos, is that the same thing? 
It is, you know, it depends on the artist again. So like, you know, a lot of them, I keep saying like legacy acts or, you know, classic rock or older country or something. It's a, kind of about the fee. You know, it's about the, the amount of money that the artist is going to get paid to do the show. There are certain acts of that in that genre that are mindful of the ticket pricing. If they notice it's way out of whack, they definitely want to know what's going on. Um, the younger developing acts, the acts that are kind of on that upward trajectory are way more mindful of ticket pricing. Um, and the battle then becomes kind of educating my colleagues, the agents, the responsible agents for the artists to let them know that casinos aren't necessarily a money grab. Uh, if you want ticket prices to be in line with the rest of your tour, it's going to impact the amount of money that the casino is going to be able to offer you. You know, so there is, you know, you have to find that balance and you have to, you're educating people constantly because the old mentality of casinos was that it was soft money and that mm. they would just throw whatever you ask, they would just throw a pile of money at you and come play the show. But it's, it's really not like that. It's, you know, they're putting a lot of thought on their offers too and what they can price to that to get people to buy tickets because uh, they're not comping all those tickets anymore. So yeah, mm -hmm. there's a lot of education that goes into that and it's, it's evolving. And I do have actually one more question because you just reminded sure. me of something because we've been talking about fly-in dates and single, you know, one band routing mm -hmm. a tour. But then there have been the artists in Vegas, for example, Celine Dion, Shania Twain, Elton John, who've been doing these long residencies that could be weeks, months, years long. Are those negotiated by someone like you or is that a, that's at a different level uh, when that's something like that is done? It'll be, I will be involved in that, but that's a time when you really want the responsible agent involved too, because there's a much bigger picture idea happening there. And it's not about kind of booking one show. It's about booking a series of events and how it's going to be marketed and advertised and how it affects the artist brand and all that kind of stuff. So we tend to have the responsible agents involved in those conversations. One, because it just makes it go quick. Like you don't, you don't really need somebody in the middle of something like that. Um, you know, especially when you're dealing with an artist of that stature, you know, it's kind of like those, most of those agents have been working with those clients for several, several years and they can just get everything done very quickly. And they know exactly what's important to the artist and to negotiate those deal points and probably get it done faster. So I'm involved, but I would say that the responsible agents handled those residency type bookings more directly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we need to be responsible for your time and right. cut it all off now because you got to go. You, you, he's a, he's wearing a Yankee hat, so he's probably going to the Yankee game at four or something, but not telling us. Um, yeah, by no the way, for, yeah, for, you know, for just for our listeners, today is game five. Um, it's taking yeah. the Yankees and Guardians uh, seven weeks to play a five-game series, but um, they're That's playing true. tonight. Yeah. And as, as a Mets fan, I wish the Guardians all the luck. Weather, weather. <laughs> oh, yeah. But um, Kevin, VP of Casinos for uh, Wasserman, thank you so much for appearing on Music Biz 101. Yeah, enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. It was a good time. Yeah. Thank you. Now, right. at the end of every show, Kevin, do you know what we say? Because we do not say hello. That would be re ridiculous. I do not know what you say. I would assume that you're saying goodbye. At some we say goodbye, but not in the customary in glass that you would assume at the end of every show, we say, adios. Adios. Adios to you guys.
That's why it's contagious 